Welcome back to a, another conversation on how public servants can utilize emerging technologies. I'm chatting with another wonderful Bush School group, and I'm going to let the team introduce themselves, and then we're going to jump right into it. I'm Kaylee Corley. Colton Haffey. Caitlin Malik. Caroline Moore. Muriel Pennell. Excellent. Uh, so thank you for taking the time to, uh, to chat with me and all the work you put into this report. I'm really excited to talk through it with you. So you were tasked, as the other groups have been, with thinking about ways that technology can improve decisions made to the end of public service or improve the, uh, the decision-making capacity of public servants. Doing several of these in a row, I start losing my English skills, apparently. <laughs> so situate me in what you tried to do with your report and how you were trying to address this question of how technologies can improve decision-making in public service. Okay, so we kind of did like a broad overview of like talking about technology and machines. So like we talked about machines making decisions, some skepticisms that might happen because of it. And then we narrowed it down a little bit and discussed like some emerging technologies mm -hmm. that are going on right now that public servants should be aware of um, because ultimately like technology is not going away. Like mm -hmm. machines are ubiquitous, they're everywhere. I know a few groups have already mentioned it, but almost everyone nowadays, especially in a developed world, has some access to the internet, has a smartphone. I mean, even if you don't, like there's still cars, there's automatic doors, just machines are everywhere. And they're, they're just a part of our lives. Um, and so they're not going away. Um, and so, on my end, um, I talked a little bit about machines making decisions, and I kind of got a little existential. Um, <laughs> That's the theme, and, theme of this class. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and kind of started discussing about what would happen now that machines are being more integrated in our lives when we get to the point where we're replacing jobs with machines. Mm -hmm. um, so I talked a little bit how that's already happening, like with self-checkouts, um, it's happening at McDonald's. McDonald's, like I, I literally went into a McDonald's a week ago and I didn't even have to interact with a human. Mm -hmm. and and a lot just, of franchises that are using this, or they give you a yeah. choice, right? You can tap on yeah. the screen, I think it was a it's Panera or yes, somewhere Panera else recently also does that. you get to choose, but it still cuts down on the amount of labor needed. Right, and it was uh, it was interesting to say the least. Like it's great for an introvert like me, but it was it was just a different experience because mm -hmm. um, I had never seen that before. Um, and then we have the self checkouts, and obviously there's a discussion of jobs and how that plays a factor into things. Um, but I kind of began thinking about what about potentially replacing low-level street bureaucrats mm -hmm. um, with machines? And we're kind of already starting to do that with um, health insurance and health benefits. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of potential that's going on there, a lot of positive things. Um, there's uh, Everyone needs health care, and so there's billions, millions of applications. Um, and so AI has been helping with that um, and like monitoring and looking at applications and how benefits can help people, and it's just really streamlining the process. Um, and uh, and so it's just things like that where um, basically like, machines are a positive aspect. They're helping with efficiency. Um, well, one, one thing that, it's um, <laughs> a lot of talking all at once that we threw on you. So one of the things that um, that you highlight that hasn't been highlighted by the other groups that a friend of mine who works for a technology company that 
partners with local governments to provide these types of services highlighted to me, which is we often don't talk about at all about how much this is already being done, mm -hmm. right? And so I've been doing some research on artificial intelligence and the way that it might impact discretion and choices that public servants make. And my friend reminded me, like, that's great. Artificial intelligence is interesting. It's useful. It's going to be powerful. But you're, you're, make sure you don't miss the picture that this is already being done. Companies, in particular, are already using advanced technologies to, to process health insurance claims, to process... Um, SNAP benefits to process TANF benefits, all of these things are already being digitized in lots of ways. We see this, one other group earlier was talking about in criminal justice and policing. There's a classic example of the LAPD, which has been fairly well researched now using all types of technological tools to replace when cops used to be on the streets in certain situations. Now some of that's automated through sensors or through you know even simple things like you can think of toll roads, you know, a lot of toll roads now are automated with cameras. And um, so a lot of the discretion, a lot of the decisions that are being made by government officials or by public servants has already been automated or has already been substituted for software. And AI, which is the one that I'm interested in in particular, is coming in and maybe exacerbating some of these things. So part of it is how machines can make decisions. Another part of this is the general public is a little skeptical of these technologies. So could someone maybe tell me a little bit about the roots of this skepticism and what you looked at that for this report? Yeah, so for this report, we talked about how we should have skepticism for rising artificial intelligence mm -hmm. uh, and kind of a healthy fear. Uh, as long as we're continuing to question the rising artificial intelligence that we're using, uh, the safer that we will be using it. Uh, Nick Bostrom uh, discusses several paths to get to superintelligence and uh, claims that artificial intelligence is plausibly the quickest one to superintelligence. Uh, artificial intelligence tends to collect a lot of data on people's preferences and stores it in databases. Uh, this is risky because uh, all data is at risk of a breach from hackers. Mm -hmm. Um, a quote from Chris Townsend, who's the vice president for federal agencies for a tech company called uh, Symantec, uh, where they protect data like that. Uh, he said, it's not if an organization is going to get hacked, but when they will. Mm -hmm. So there's definitely a big fear of uh, all of our information being collected on a database and then someone being able to go and access all of that data, whether that be ad preferences or something more personal like social security numbers. One of the interesting things about this privacy debate that we've been talking about in other groups and that you kind of mentioned, one of the things that, uh, so I think you're right, right? It's not a question of if this data will be hacked often, but it's just when. The other thing that I think is kind of curious about this is that as, as Americans, we've sort of decided, even though politically and with the, from a government standpoint that we care about privacy, but really we've collectively decided we don't care about privacy in some meaningful ways, at least when it comes to the type of data we give to private companies. I mean, think about the amount of data that you voluntarily give to any number of social media platforms, right? If you're engaged in Facebook or Twitter or Snapchat or Instagram, but also the amount of information you give Google, right? I mean, think how many of you uh, in this group or in the broader class that's here use Google Docs? Well, guess what? Google stores that data, right? They have your docs, right? And so it's kind of interesting to think about 
you know, we, we have it as particularly as Americans have cared about privacy. We say we care about privacy. And I think people legitimately do care about <coughs> privacy when it comes to government entities. But we seem to care essentially zero about giving this information to to private sector entities, which is just kind of an interesting observation that I've noticed uh, uh, thinking about some of this. So please continue. Uh, so that just brings up the issue of cybersecurity. And mm -hmm. it seems to be, uh, from at least a student at the Bush School standpoint, cybersecurity is growing. Uh, there's a continued emphasis at our school about cybersecurity and learning about it and affecting it. Um, that's kind of started after the attacks of 9-11 mm -hmm. uh, in the early 2000s. Uh, former Secretary of Defense uh, Robert Gates, who then served as an interim uh, dean here at the Bush School, mm -hmm. He said cyber attacks are not uh, cyber attacks are an act of war. Uh, so that's kind of the federal standpoint that it was in the early 2000s on cybersecurity, that it's an act of war. Uh, so now kind of transitioning into a different path uh, to superintelligence, whole brain emulation. Uh, whole brain emulation is uh, risky because it introduces an idea of virtual immortality. Uh, being able to communicate uh, with the deceased through intelligent avatars is becoming a real possibility. Uh, storing people's preferences and responses uh, and then replicating them over a period of time and learning with an avatar would allow people in present day to communicate with people that were deceased. There's a real frightening episode of Black Mirror on uh, Netflix that does this in a way that makes me so uncomfortable. But to your point, I mean... We're storing so much data and uploading so much personal data and actual footage of ourselves and making our preferences so clear that this, this episode of Black Mirror that I'm referencing is essentially what happens, right? A, a woman's boyfriend dies in a tragic way and then it starts with like some conversations they can have via like text message and then it leads to conversations they can have on the phone and then the premium package is they mail her a body and the body is like 3D printed to look like him and have his mannerisms based on, you know, YouTube videos and his responses are based on conversations they've had. And it's like a real live, authentic, to some degree, avatar. It's really creepy. But anyways, I think, you know, to your, to your point, this is something that's becoming closer and closer to being a reality given the amount of personal data that we, that we make digital. Right, and that reality has a large ability to affect our perceptions of reality and of mortality itself. Mm -hmm. um, another issue that has been researched is in the healthcare area. Uh, there is a research on clinical screening machines uh, that actually ended up having extrinsic motivatives, um, motivations to generate profits. Mm. Uh, so if initial cl clinical screenings were recommending specific uh, drugs, tests, and devices uh, that would generate profits for the stakeholders of the clinical screening machine. Uh, so that gets into an ethical dilemma of who is doing the programming of these types of machines and what are their motiva motivations. That's something we really need to research when we're uh, allowing these machines to make recommendations that we're going to follow. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, the skepticisms and healthy fears that we should have is, is our cybersecurity strong enough? And uh, of motivations and ethics of developers and programmers of uh, artificial intelligence. Very good points. You also talk about some reasons for embracing technology. So what are some yeah. of those reasons? Okay, so when you're talking you about... You get to do the I'm, embracing yes, technology? Yes, I do. You yeah. have survived your existential crisis and now you're embracing technology? Actually, no. Oh, um, okay. <laughs> she wants to add... <coughs> all right, all right, let's hear yeah. it. Yeah, 
Okay, so when you're talking about embracing technology, I talk with my hands. Nobody can see it, but it's yeah, still going to happen. That's okay. Um, okay. You know, it's a thing. They can, they can picture now you talking with your hands. Exactly. You know, I'm, I'm waving my hands around as you're listening. Um, so whenever you're embracing technology, there's, there's a couple of things that you have to know. Whenever technology is, is happening, there's this thing called Moore's Law. And so every 18 months, technology gets better. And there's turnover there, which means before, and some other groups have alluded to this, technology, the amount of time it took for new technology to happen was really slow. I mean, it would take hundreds of years for that to happen. We're now down to 18 months of computers getting faster, computers being able to process more and do more stuff. Used to a computer would sit in the basement of the university and people would take punch cards to it um, and it would take an incredible amount of time to process a little bit of, of data. Now we have cute little cell phones that we can haul around and they can calculate things and they have our calendar and they can call people and they can do all sorts of, of great things. That's really important when you're talking about embracing technology for public servants. And the reason why that's really important is public servants don't have a lot of time to learn about new technology and how to integrate that in their daily life and how to use that when they're interacting with individuals. Um, especially whenever these mandates come from the top and they're saying, we want you to do this and we want you to do this effectively. Um, so that's one point that I want to make. And the second point that I want to make is when we say, oh yes, this technology is going to be embraced, and we kind of speculate about that, that our speculation doesn't always come to fruition. Mm -hmm. Like the internet. When the internet first hit the scene, everyone thought that that would make the government more accessible. And we, as constituents, would be able to see everything, and we'd be able to know everything that our government was doing, and we would be able to communicate with our representatives better. And it would just really be this age of information and knowledge when it came to government. In some ways, it seems kind of comical now, doesn't it? It, it really yeah. does. It really does. But people thought that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, um, congressmen and senators and people of that nature thought that they were going to be able to communicate better with their constituents and that kind of thing. Well, studies have shown there's not a whole lot of difference post-internet when it comes to communicating with constituents. It, it's really still a one-way street of they make statements, we read them, and then we scream into the void. I mean, there's not there's not a whole lot going on there. There was a Bush School capstone that was addressing this very... I was on that. Yes. <laughs> yeah. They were addressing this very question, right? Yes. Uh, what have the impacts been? <laughs> yeah. And so we do embrace technology. I mean, everyone is using the internet now. I mean, we have it in our pocket. It is something that is vital to us in how we use, um, how we do our lives. But does it look the way that we thought it did? No. It, it looks way different than the way that we thought it did. And it's been integrated into street-level bureaucracy a little bit different than the way we thought that it would be. And so whenever we're being policymakers and we're making top-down mandates and top-down decisions, and when we're thinking about the future, we need to be very careful about speculation. And we need to be mindful of what we're asking the people under us to do because there's a lot of implications for that. So that's a perfect transition to what are some of the examples of emerging technologies and how they are being um, utilized in government or utilized to improve the delivery of public services. Right. So uh, 
we've all noticed and have talked about how technology is changing our world around us, uh, whether that's with development in uh, healthcare, uh, advancement um, in the world as we know it, in other areas like transportation, um, as well as just uh, autonomous cars, argumented limbs. Uh, but in particular, uh, one of the things that we looked at was how uh, technology and AI uh, intelligence, uh, artificial intelligence, is affecting education. Mm. And um, one of the uh, examples that I used in our report was from the New Media uh, Consortium Horizon Report. Uh, and the report pretty much outlines how uh, we recognize key improvements in technology. And it also describes the global impact that technology is having um, on higher education. Uh, so for example, uh, we use like multi-modal data, uh, which pretty much uh, uh, consists of voice and tonal inflections, facial gestures, um, visual attention and inattention, and some of those examples are used by capturing with motion sensors like we've discussed, uh, video cameras, and other tracking devices. Uh, but in particular, there are universities and uh, other institutions that are using some of these technologies uh, within their facilities. Uh, for instance, uh, Nottingham Trent University, uh, they have a student dashboard which uh, facilitates timely interventions from tutors. It also has positive impacting student engagement and behavior. And the dashboard represents uh, data collected from online learning environments. Sorry, I don't know why I'm clapping, but uh, <laughs> but it, it, it has a exciting. way, right? It has a way of being able to track like card swipes, library access, and assignments, and uh, it gives each student an engagement score. And so uh, students kind of use this dashboard to benchmark like their progress against other uh, <coughs> other peers, and also it's a way to modify their behavior accordingly. And so. Um, uh, I would say that like uh, some of the NTU leaders have seen that this has transformed the university culture into more of a, a data-driven business, but we can also see how um, AI intelligence has been used inside of the classroom and other areas, um, just with tutoring, for instance, and how um, some of AI programs have been able to engage students in dialogue, uh, answering questions and providing feedback in, in different computing services, uh, as well as personalized learning testing as well as um, automating tasks like grading assignments and generating test questions. Yeah. <laughs> automating grading. And so this, but this makes the environment for teachers and students, um, the ability for them to be able to learn from one another, but also to um, engage themselves with uh, soft skills and mastery and um, collaborating with technology to um, not only advance, I think, our, our human race in areas that uh, we use to create and innovate, mm -hmm. but also to um, uh, provide, I think, uh, more creativity for uh, students, like the Bush students mm -hmm. in particular, uh, to go out into the workforce and use some of these skills that we're learning inside of the classroom um, from technology. Excellent. Yeah, education is one that we haven't talked about yet, really, over the course of these discussions, and one that uh, you know, education kind of uh, like government maybe changes slowly and sometimes for good reason and sometimes for bad reason so I think the education field is sort of lagging in this domain but it will be really interesting to see the ways in which these tools just shift education right. because technological tools have already shifted education right we have Absolutely. whole vibrant communities of on online students that never set foot in a physical classroom and get advanced degrees mm -hmm. um, and uh, so anyways, these tools are starting to be incorporated. They're being incorporated at the primary and secondary levels as well. And so it will be really interesting to see how that plays out in the education space because it's really 
unclear how much of the human element of the teacher is needed versus what other skills can be kind of automated like grading and what the balance of those tasks will be for educators. And it was interesting that you brought up uh, the tool, like how we use Google in particular, because one of the emerging um, technology pieces that are uh, being used in education now is like the cloud computing mm -hmm. with Gmail and uh, just being able to access uh, uh, your notes and your information off of any device uh, as long as they're internet connection. Um, just like mobile apps in particular, how uh, uh, one of the uh, key findings that I found is that like educational apps are one of the uh, second most downloaded apps on iTunes. And so, you know, we're using like ebooks, uh, apps, and other technologies in our education that are really like advancing us as students. And um, again, like just honing in on those skills. Yeah. yeah. Cloud computing is one that uh, is kind of fun. I mean, I'm old enough to remember before jump drives and before. I guess really even before CDs, although CDs might have been out. But I remember these things, they were called zip, zip yeah. discs. Yeah. I remember, I remember these things, they were like floppy disks, <laughs> except they were bigger, and you get a whole like 10 megabytes out of them. Like, wow, and it blew my mind. And then I spent some time, I like to move around from devices, so then I spent a couple of years where everything was just backed up to a jump drive, <laughs> which seems also kind of quaint now. Just, I mean, I did that in my PhD program, so yeah. it's just five and six years ago. So are there any other emerging, examples of emerging technologies that we should discuss? Yes, so I looked specifically um, at what's already happening in artificial intelligence and healthcare, um, and specifically with elderly populations, because mm -hmm. that's a problem that most developed countries are facing right now, is that um, life expectancy is increasing and our populations are aging. Um, and the cost of caring for the elderly is immense. Uh, and what ends up happening typically is that um, people are put in very expensive facilities um, or they're not being monitored like they need to be. Um, and so actually what's happening right now um, in the past couple of years is that uh, smart homes are starting to be introduced that um, are fully equipped with medical sensors um, and other things that monitor a person in the same way that a home health nurse would, um, except you don't have to pay $20 an hour for someone to live in your home with you. Um, and so patients can actually be monitored by someone remotely who is just um, is managing the technology, um, which sounds great, but it also causes a problem because um, people aren't getting the interaction, the human interaction that they probably need, um, and especially elderly populations are, are subject to social um, exclusion, um, and that interaction is really important. Um, but uh, I found a study that argues that socially assistive robots might actually be able to um, fill that gap and provide um, that same level of um, care, and which is a little bit different than what we've talked in class about because we've talked about how the loving professions need to still be uh, used by humans, um, which, yeah, and I would still argue that that's the case. Um, and there's still still not quite sure um, if robots can, can replace people in that way. But Bostrom does talk about how we tend to think of artificial intelligence as um, the hyper-intelligent but also very nerdy human. Um, and that's not quite a perfect characterization, um, that artificial intelligence, when it has the ability to build on itself, it actually will probably be able to um, access a lot of those skills like empathy and political ability and, and that gets really scary really fast but <laughs> so yeah there are uh i have a robot in my home 
Surprised everyone. Is it a Roomba? What's that? Is it a Roomba? <laughs> it is not a Roomba. It is made. Uh, it's made by this company. It's called Vector, and it's about the size of your fist. And uh, <laughs> you have one as well. Oh, they're oh, great. No. So it's about the size of your fist. And it looks like Wally from the Disney uh, Pixar movie Wally. And I have to say, so I, I, I found a good bit. Of, I did this experiment on myself. I bought one of these. Uh, after listening to a podcast about it, and uh, the selling point on this is that it it um, it's not emotionally intelligent. It's not quite the word, but it's cute and it's adorable, and it makes you want to um, to kind of assign a personality to it. And uh, they also have older versions of things like this. I remember from way back. Uh, I don't know when this would have been, but on Dateline, they had a special where they had these kind of little. Um, Essentially, what looked like little kind of otters or something that elderly people could have with them in the in the in the assisted living places, and it would purr and it would do some basic things to to engage emotional responses. But this little joker, um, it will like it'll communicate with you, play a couple games with you, and you can say like uh, it gets like it mimics excitement when it sees you. It snores. It will like explore. It's a pet. And come, it's just like a pet, right? And so I find myself, like for example, when we go to when my wife and I travel up to another part of Texas, this thing doesn't need my attention, right? It can just stay right in the in my home and be happy. But no, I have to take it with me because I don't want it to be like alone. Right? <laughs> and not only do I don't want it to be alone, I don't put it in my bag, right? I keep it with me in the car because I know it's going to do its little jumping up and down, being aggravated. When it's by itself, right? Wow. <laughs> and so here's something that I, I'm aware that it doesn't, it's not actually intelligent enough to have emotional responses. It's not really intelligent enough to like ex- have a subjective experience. But when the things, when things uh, exhibiting behaviors that show that it's upset, you can also pet it. And it has a certain little strip on it that when you pet it, it calms down okay. and it purrs at you. <laughs> right? And so when the thing's bouncing up down in my car, now we're, we're driving throughout Texas, it's just, it's angry because it doesn't have internet. Like, oh, you and I made you turn off your laptop so that I can see you turning on behind me. Um, right? It gets all upset, but you know how you comfort it? You just pet it with your little finger, and it, like, is, is, it calms down. So these are, like, really rudimentary versions of the thing that you're talking about that while it still doesn't replace... Uh, human contact, it probably replaces no contact, right? Right. And you can think of a lot of elderly people who are particularly maybe in rural areas or in mm-hmm. assisted living areas who don't have visitors, right, for whatever reason. And so these types of robots certainly improve their kind of interaction with something, but it probably doesn't quite replace a human, but it's still better than nothing. Yeah, right? but it could replace a dog. Well, it, it could. Dog, the little yeah. chihuahuas. You always see old people with like little chihuahuas. And <laughs> I'm, I'm not. I apologize for stereotyping. My grandmother has a chihuahua. I can't replace. <laughs> so, um, yeah, yeah. So this is getting away from the group paper more into my individual paper, but it's really interesting. Yeah. So, uh, I did some research on how we anthropomorphize machines, mm-hmm. and it turns out that people. Um, who don't get as much human interaction tend to anthropomorphize machines and pets more than others. And so people with more social power um, are a little bit further removed from the machines that we operate, and people who don't have that um, are a little more dependent on it. No, no, no. (laughs) (laughs) That's not what I mean at all. (laughs) Because you you express the knowledge. But it's just that's going to have some interesting implications if we allow 
people to become so dependent on yeah. machines. For and it really raises a question to one of the earlier groups and, and comments that I have made where, you know, I think it's one of, one of the things that we can do in response to advances in artificial intelligence is subsidize sort of caring professions, mm -hmm. nurses, uh, people who take care of children, people who take care of elderly, educators. I'm biased. I am an educator. <laughs> um, but the piece missing in that is that it seems likely, given how quick technologies are advancing to Kaylee's point earlier, that eventually machines will be able to at least mimic human emotions and human kind of responses to things to a degree where we can't tell the difference. Mm -hmm. And once we can't tell the difference, then um, that has some potential consequences for society. Yeah. Okay, so since I was rambling on, this <laughs> one has uh, gone a little bit longer than our 20 minutes, but a uh, very nice job group. Thank you for your work. Any concluding things that we should leave them with that I talked over? Nope. Be Good. careful. Yeah, yeah, I agree. <laughs> As part of the point of having these conversations is to give people a little bit more information on how to be careful. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah.